Today's passage is Revelation 2. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Heavenly Father God, as we open your word over these next few moments, Lord, I pray, as I pray so often, that this would not simply be a religious exercise, but Lord, it would be an opportunity to encounter you. And Lord, I pray, God, as we open your word, that your spirit would be free to move about this place to convict hearts. And Lord, I pray that it would be an opportunity for those who are afflicted to be comforted and those who are comfortable to be afflicted. God, I pray that you would be glorified this morning as we open your word. And Lord, I pray all of these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. By way of introduction, I won't do this every week, but as we begin this over the next today and then the next six weeks after this, um, we are going to go through the entirety of Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. That's the, the, the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. A few things that I want to say at the beginning of this series, and like I said, I won't say this every week necessarily, but the first... It's important to realize that this is one letter written to seven churches and it is called the book of Revelation. Now, I know that sounds silly to say that since you're obviously open to it, but I'll say why in a moment. It's also important to recognize, and, and I'm about to say this and, and I will tell you before I say it, if you know what I'm talking about, I am more than willing to have a conversation with you later about it. If you have no idea what I'm talking about over these next few sentences, you are absolutely no worse off. Don't worry about it. It's important to note that these do not represent the seven ages of the church, but are in fact messages from the Lord Jesus Christ to seven real churches in real time. And when you read these, it's important to note that because sometimes when we read Scripture, and especially when we read the book of Revelation, we are prone to overcomplicate things. There are certainly things in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in Scripture that are figurative. When Jesus says, I am the door, he does not mean that he, he contains hinges or nails or wood. But whenever we read the scripture, it is very important that when we read it, we recognize a very important principle that I've said before, but I'll say it again. When you read the Bible, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. And when you read the book of Revelation and you read the, the messages to the first seven uh, or to these seven 
churches, what you find is that they sure sound like seven regular letters written to seven churches. Or seven messages, rather, written, written to seven churches. Again, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that is perfectly okay. And third, because this is one letter written to seven churches, it applies to us. And the reason it applies to us is, you'll find, so I thought this was seven letters. Well, it's not seven letters, it's one letter. The book of Revelation is one letter written to all of them. And the reason I know that is, one, it's in one letter. But two, every single one of the messages given to these seven churches, at the end of it, it says, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is one letter written to all seven, which means that the church at Thyatira is supposed to hear the message that Jesus has for the church at Ephesus, and it applies to them. And the church at Smyrna is supposed to hear the message that he has for the church at Laodicea, and it applies to them. And so if that's the case, then all seven of them, when we read them, to one measure or another, they apply to us. And so when we look at this passage, it's important to recognize that while we are reading a letter that was written to seven churches in Asia Minor over 2,000 years ago, it very much applies to Eastwood Baptist Church this morning. So with that said, introduction. In 1878, Theodore Roosevelt went to a party. And when he went to a party, he met a young lady named Alice. And when he met this young lady, uh, everyone looked at him and looked at her. And as people do often when they look at me and look at my wife, they said, no way on earth. That's it. I, I'm the first one to amen. I'm telling you. So he turned to his friends and he said, quote, I'm going to marry that girl. And then a couple of years later, after courting her and her turning him down some 25 times, she relented and agreed to marry him. Now, when he did this, he, he did, when he knew, when she said, I'm going to marry you, he did everything he could to make their wedding perfect to make the home they were going to move into perfect. He planned their honeymoon meticulously. I mean down to the letter. Uh, their, their honeymoon plan uh, that he planned so meticulously is that they were going to leave out of New York Harbor. They were going to sail to Europe. And they were going to spend three months in Europe. All around. Now, he was, so already, he was already so involved in politics that um, they got married in October. But they were not able to take their honeymoon until May of the next year, which is fine. Um, and so he had planned it down to the letter. Now, in that time period, if you know this, when they left out of New York Harbor, uh, to get to Europe, it took between seven and eight days uh, on, on the sea voyage to get there. And so he had planned this trip meticulously. He knew his young bride, and he was ready to go. However, when they got on the boat he found out something that he did not know. She was prone to horrific seasickness. And over the next seven to eight days, she threw up every 20 minutes, could not leave the stateroom. He had to feed, spoon feed her, knowing that whatever he fed her was going to come right back up. She was so weak, he had to carry her everywhere they went on the boat. In fact, in his autobiography, he said, we had the best time on our honeymoon voyage. It was as fun as a funeral. <laughs> he, 
He said at one point it was so horrible he actually contemplated letting her fall asleep and then jumping overboard. <laughs> See, in all of his plans, in all of his meticulous ordering of detail and, and all of his um, elaborate and meaningful planning, he forgot something very, very important. I would say he forgot a very needed detail. And that was to find out if she could even make the journey. See, often as believers, as the church, in our haste to accomplish things, in our striving to be prestigious, to be highly thought of, in our drive to do so many things in our lives and in our ministry, we may forget something. Or rather, someone. Is it possible personally or corporately, that we have removed Jesus from his rightful place in our lives and in the church and set him over to the side? What we'll see from this text this morning is simple. Faithful disciples keep Christ in the center. Faithful disciples keep Christ in the center. See, as we read or as we seek to be faithful as the church, and as we seek to remain faithful to Christ as his people, we can rest in the truth of Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Now, this isn't a part of the text that we'll get to in a second, but I just love this passage, and I can't overlook it. It's absolutely beautiful. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, this should cause something to well up inside you. I can't really explain but John was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and it says he had a vision. And in verse 12 it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, these things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Fear not, verse 17 says, I am the first and the last, and the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. We talk about the beginning of a letter. And so he begins to speak to John and really to the seven churches. And what we see first is that he is a comforting and ever-watching Savior. He says in verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
Now, it's very important because each one of these uh, sections that are addressed to the different churches begin with, to the angel. I want to be really clear. Um, This word... It's translated angel because that's the, the word is angelos. It's, it's the word we use commonly, angel. But technically in Greek, the word angelos does not mean angel. The word angelos means messenger. Um, it, it's, it, we use the term angel. It's just a, a way that we have Englishized the word. And so um, when we look at this, it says it means messenger. Second, we, only, we have no, absolutely no New Testament precedent. For there being anything uh, regarding an angel who is specifically assigned or set over individual churches. There's no, there's no evidence of that at all. So if the letter is addressed to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus. The word means literally one who delivers a message or one who stands on behalf of another to make an announcement then what this letter is addressed to, or who this letter is addressed to, is the pastor. The pastor, the elder. The one who gives, stands on behalf of God and gives the message to the people of God. So he tells them, this is written to him. Why? Because whenever they received a letter, the pastor would stand up and read the letter. So it was addressed to him because he was the one who would address it to the church. And so as we read this... This is written to the messenger, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he is to share this message with the church. And it says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This sounds kind of vague. Uh, You know, uh, he's he's holding seven stars, and um, he is walking among seven golden lampstands, and that would be kind of difficult to understand, except that he literally just told us at the end of chapter 1 who that is. He says here in verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you see in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, or the the pastors. These are the seven messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So listen to what it says. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. What a comforting statement. This is a present active verb. It means uh, that he is constantly holding and constantly walking. He is ever present and ever watchful. As you'll see in a minute, the church in Ephesus, and as we are no doubt familiar with even today, But the church in Ephesus dealt with some significant problems. Uh, They dealt with issues of persecution. They dealt with issues of hardship. And so what a comforting statement to know that when the people of God stand on behalf of God and stand on the word of God, that he is always among us. He is always with us. He has not forgotten us in our difficulty. See, for the church in Ephesus, this was an amazing message. Because you can imagine, when things get hard, it's easy to say, oh, where is God? Where, where, is, where is he? It, just, it feels like we've been left alone, like we've been abandoned. And yet, the first thing Jesus says to the church at Ephesus is, I am walking among you. I am with you. What a comforting statement to know that no matter how bad it gets, Jesus is with us. And I could tell you honestly, Without belaboring it too long. As difficult as it gets sometimes. I can tell you I find deep comfort. I'm so thankful for a church who loves me. 
I'm so thankful for a church that loves my family and treats us better than every other church I've ever been at combined. But at the same time, the greatest comfort I have in the world is that he holds me in his right hand. But remember, this is also a warning. So why is it a warning? Um, because if Jesus walks among us, that means he knows everything we're doing. He's aware of everything we're doing, and, and hear me, he's aware of everything we're not doing. He's aware of your, where your heart is right now. He's aware of where your mind is right now. He is aware of what's going on in secret that no one else knows because he walks among you. Again, it's both comforting and so sobering to remember that he cares for us and he is ever present with us. However, while it's true that he cares, I want to be very clear because we'll hear this one say, you know, all that, all that we need to know is that Jesus loves us. And that is absolutely true. Jesus does love us. But sometimes we want to use that love as an excuse to think we can do whatever we want to because, hey, in the end, Jesus loves us. But this message here, this passage here shows us that not only does he love us and it is comforting that he is with us, but he has a particular standard for us. There is a particular standard. You don't get to say you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You don't get to say that you are a church that follows the Lord Jesus Christ and then do whatever you want to do. He gives a very particular standard. In verse 2, he says, I know your works. It's also important to note that in all seven of these messages to the churches, as he begin, to the churches, he begins with, I know. That's because he's walking among us. So if he was to look at Eastwood today, he would say, I know, dot, dot, dot. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So this is what he knows about them. He knows their toil, their works, and their patient endurance. Now, these words, these words, toil and patient endurance, they let us know, without really telling us anything, they let us know um, that he, they are experiencing something that is causing them to have to endure. So the only thing that you have to endure in the New Testament um, in regard to this kind of statement is enduring hardship or enduring persecution. And we'll know that in a second, we'll get a little more indication of that. But they're enduring. And Jesus says, I know you're enduring. I know you are standing firm. I know you're toiling. And then he says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So who, this church is a holy church. This church stands for the truth of God and does not stand and allow sin and the sin of the world to infiltrate her doors. Stands for the truth of God's word and doesn't allow the sin of the world and the sin of the flesh to come in. And so much so that they toil and they endure. And then we get a little more of an indication as to what's going on. It says, how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested. So who are they dealing with? They're dealing with false teachers. They're dealing with bad theology. They're dealing with poor doctrine. But they have tested those who call themselves apostle and, of apostles and are not and found them to be 
false. How many Christians today messing around with false teachers? How many people say, well, you know, I know that everything he says isn't right, but he just makes me feel good. Well, I know that... uh, I know that maybe it's not the right way to say that or I know that his view on the Trinity is a little weird or I know that her view on the doctrine of Christ is a little bit strange but you know, they sure make me feel good and they're really smart. Satan's really smart. And if he can make you feel good and lead you down a false path, you better believe he will. But it says these people, they, they tested those who called. Well, in order to test false teaching, you've got to know true doctrine. You've got to know right theology. You've got to know the word. You know the reason people fall prey, the reason Christians fall prey, the reason churches fall prey to false doctrine? It is not because false teachers are that convincing, although they may be. The reason churches and Christians fall prey to false doctrine is because they don't know the word of God. He says, you test them, and you have found them to be false. I know, verse 3, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Notice that. They can't bear sin and false doctrine, but they are bearing up against persecution, against difficulty. Why do I say that? Because look what he says. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake sake. So whatever they're experiencing, they're being attacked because of their beliefs. They're being attacked because of who they stand for and what they stand for. He says, I know you're doing that. I know that you are standing firm and you have not grown weary. They're handling it. They are bearing up. They've not given up. Can I tell you this? Too many churches and too many believers have just given up. They've just given up. Uh, Giving up looks like churches or believers who decide to no longer take stands against sin. They decide to no longer stand up for the truth of God's word. They start saying things like, well, I I know the Bible says this, but... They begin giving up, and it looks like churches or believers who begin to compromise God's word because of pressure from the culture. It looks like churches that start allowing the world to define things instead of standing on how the word of God defines things. It looks like churches that are more concerned with how flashy things are than how true things are. It looks like preachers who feel they have to dress up the Bible because they stop believing that simply standing and faithfully declaring the word of God is enough. Church, this is the standard by which we are called to live. And I commit to you, at Eastwood, we will never back away from the truth of God's word. Even when it gets hard, even when it's unpopular, even when I can't listen to the voice messages on my message box because of how vile they are, even if they threaten to take our tax-exempt status away, even if they want to come and lead me right out those doors to the jail cell, We will not back away. We will patiently toil and endure for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Let me say this, though. 
While we are called to do this corporately, we are also certainly called to do this individually. Are you messing around with things you should not be messing around with? Are you bearing with evil? Are you listening to false teachers because they make you feel good? Or are you testing them to see if what they say is true? If you are, then you must remember that this is the standard by which we are called to live. It's not easy. That's why he called it toil. It's difficult. That's why we're called to endure. It doesn't happen overnight. That's why he praises them for their patience. But he has a particular standard for us. And while he does that, it's also extremely important. We stand for all those things. We clap for all those things. We want to be all of those things. But it is also possible and very important that we know that we can get it wrong even while we're trying to do right. Well, where do you get that from? Well, he just spent all this time praising them for everything that they do. They stand against false teaching. They patiently endure. They toil. They, they, they stand for the name of Christ. They, they have to endure through hardship because of how, who they believe in and what they believe. And then he says, but I have this against you. So they're, they're not perfect. And there is no such thing as a perfect church, by the way. The old adage is this. If, um, if there is a such thing as a perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They're doing everything right, and yet they have forgotten not just something kind of important, they have forgotten the most important thing. Look what he says. He says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned. Not just kind of set aside. Not just kind of not looked at anymore. Not just kind of only reference now and then. He says you have abandoned. Left aside. Cast off. You don't even think about it anymore. And what is it? He says you have abandoned the love you had at first. Believer, when you came to Jesus Christ, what was the love you had at first? You may have come to Christ not out of a church background. Maybe you did come out of a church background. But you came to Christ. You didn't really know much about what you believed. All you knew is this. You knew that you were sinful and you were on your way to hell. And Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and rose from the grave. You committed your life to him. He forgave you of your sins. And you were desperately in love with him. That's the love you have at first. But he says they've abandoned that. This is what I have against you. That you have abandoned the love you have at first. It is possible for us as a church to get so caught up in the work of church, in the day-to-day, Sunday-to-Sunday routine, it is so possible for us to get so caught up in the work of Christ that we forget Christ. We're so busy trying to do that we have stopped Simply resting in who he is. We're so busy working that we forget to worship. Preachers sometimes will say things like, maybe you hear, well, what would you do if Jesus walked into this room right now? 
right? And, and I mean, I understand what's being said when that question's asked, but what would you do if Jesus walked into this room right now? What we've forgotten, and, and what some of these churches have forgotten, as we'll see over the next few weeks, but what we have forgotten is Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. He is the one who walks among the churches. When the question is asked, what would you do if Jesus was here this morning? Can I tell you? Jesus is here this morning. (laughs) There's no if. He's here. And when you get in your car and drive home, he's there. And when you get to your house and you turn on the television, he's there. And when you talk to somebody at work or at the grocery store, he is there. May we never get so busy and so caught up in the details of the work of the church that we, don't, we forget to simply stop and worship the one who made us, the one who saved us, and the one who is worthy of everything we can give him. Don't get so, so caught up that you abandon your first love. That's what happens to so many of us, right? You get saved, you're ready to charge hell with a water pistol. And then very soon it just starts to wane, it starts to wane, and then years later you turn around and you say, where's the excitement? I, even, even David cries out in the Psalms, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Why? Because it's so easy. John Wesley said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's so possible for us to abandon our love for Christ while trying to do the work of Christ. And I can tell you this, if Jesus is not in the center, no amount of work that we can do will ever accomplish the glory of God. So there is a particular standard for the church. We must never lose sight of Jesus Christ as the main reason for everything we do. And it's because, verses 5 through 7, he is both terrifying and glorious in his promises to us. He is both terrifying and glorious in his promises to us. In verse 5, he tells them they've abandoned their first love, and then he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Three commands. Three commands for those who have abandoned their love for or their their first love those who have removed Jesus out of the center both for churches corporately and for you and I individually when we look at this passage he tells us to do something so well I know my passion for the Lord my drive my zeal uh, for evangelism my zeal for other people to know Jesus my zeal for worship my zeal for the word all of those things they've just waned over and I just don't know how to get it back he tells us exactly how to get back where we need to be he says first remember Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like when you woke up in the morning and you literally could not wait to open God's Word. Remember what it was like to be in God's Word and need to go to work and not want to stop. Remember what it was like to be so in love with Jesus that you couldn't care less who the other person was. You just needed them to know too. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Repent. It does not say rededicate. It does not say reassert. It does not say realize. It says repent. It means to turn and go the other direction. 
It means to be going this way and to literally say, I'm not going to do that anymore and turn and go the other way. So he says, remember where you have fallen from and repent. Go back to that because then he says, and then do the works. You did it first. So that's it. So, well, it can't be that simple. It is that simple. Remember what it was like. Repent from what you're doing now. Turn around and begin to do it again. And then it gets terrifying. See, because the church at Ephesus, he, he praises them so many, uh, for so many amazing things. For so many wonderful things. Things that we should strive to do and to be. Then he tells them they've abandoned their first love. And, and the fact that they've abandoned their first love, it's as if he says, all these things that you have done are wonderful, but none of them matter. Why? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So their sin, since they're required to repent, their sin is that they have abandoned their first love, Jesus Christ. They've taken Jesus out of the center of what they're doing. So they've abandoned their first love. They're called to repent. And Jesus says, you can do all the good things in the world. But if you don't repent of abandoning your first love, if you don't put me back in the center, he says, then I'm going to come and I'm going to do something pretty bad. And he does not say, I'm going to come and slap you on the wrist. He doesn't say, well, I'm gonna, I heard, uh, I've heard some ministers uh, say that this is him saying he's going to come and remove their effectiveness. That's not what he says. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What did he say in chapter 1, verse 20? The seven golden lampstands, this is the mystery. The seven stars are the angels of seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He says, if you do not put me back in the center of what you're doing, I will come and make it as though your church never existed. I will remove your lampstand. He doesn't say, I'll just snuff out the light. He says, I'll take the whole thing. So, well, well man, that's pretty harsh. I mean, is, is that true? Anybody been to Ephesus? It's not there anymore. There is no church there anymore. He says, if you do not do this, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There are several things we can understand from this. The first thing, and I, and I do, I think this is one of the most important truths that both we as believers individually and we as a church need to come to understand. It's not an exciting truth. I've told you all before, there are a lot of truths in Scripture. We want to talk about how he is with us always, even to the end of the age. Right? He will comfort us in our affliction. We can cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. All those look really great when they're cross-stitched on a pillow. There's a whole lot of other promises and truths in Scripture that nobody wants to put on a pillow. You don't want to walk into someone's house and see this on a pillow on their couch. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See, what we have to realize, hear me, Jesus does not need you. Jesus does not need me. 
Jesus does not need Eastwood Baptist Church to accomplish the purpose of his kingdom. He will accomplish the purpose of his kingdom according to his will and according to his way. He looks at the church of Ephesus. He says, well, y'all are doing a great job, except you've forgotten me. So because of that, unless you fix this, I'm going to come and make it as though you never existed. And then what happened to the kingdom? Did it just shut down? Did the kingdom stop? In the words of the old southern gospel song, no, the church just rolled on. He does not need me. He does not need you. He does not need this church to expand his kingdom. But the glorious truth of scripture is that while he does not need you and he does not need me and he does not need Eastwood Baptist Church, in his grace and in his mercy, he chooses to use you and to use me and to use this church to accomplish the purpose of his kingdom. So repent and do the works you did at first. So he clearly warns them. We can see here, what is the death nail of a church? See, because nowadays, what we're convinced of is that the death nail of a church is that it's not relevant anymore. The death nail of a church is that it doesn't have wonderful video systems and all these things. And all that stuff is fine. But we're convinced and told that the death nail of a church is if it doesn't look modern or it doesn't have a coffee shop or if it doesn't have this or it doesn't have that. That is not the death nail of a church. The death nail of a church is when the church takes Jesus out of the center and starts putting other stuff there. The death nail of a church is when people start taking Jesus out of the center and putting their own opinions and their own wants and their own desires in the middle. When they start saying things like, well, this is what I prefer and this is what I think. Family, can I tell you that what you think, and hear me, what I think do not matter. What he thinks matters. That's it. The moment we step outside of the word of God, the moment we step outside of Jesus being in the center, we have lost our first love and we are in serious danger. In verse 6 he says, yet this you have. I mean he gives them a little bit of hope. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans, uh, there's really nothing else in the New Testament other than in, in this book. Uh, that really references them. There's really nothing in classical history to reference them. So the only thing we know of is in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He tells us um, that the, the Nicolaitans were in, uh, in another church as well, and they are the false teachers that he's referring to. He says that uh, they, have, they hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So they were teaching them to follow idolatry and to practice sexual immorality. So he says, you stand against them, and I applaud you for this. But do you notice he does not remove the warning at all? There it is again. Doctrinal integrity, standing for the word of God, and yet he doesn't remove the warning. If I don't end up in the center, things are going to be bad. Then he says this in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So who is this for? For everyone who has an ear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And his beautiful statement. And to the one who conquers, or the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says, look, 
If you don't put me back in the center, I'll come and remove your lampstand. But if you'll overcome, if you'll endure, if you'll make everything right again, and you'll stand in the midst of persecution, and you'll put me back in the middle of everything, and you will stand for my namesake, and you will endure and toil and be patient in the coming of the Lord, and you'll do all those things, then I will grant you the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's another way of saying that if you will overcome and you will stand to the end, you will have eternal life. Now, that does not mean that if you do these things, you will be saved. It means that if you do these things, you prove that you are saved. So he says, this is what I'll do. But it is only for those who what? To those who conquer. Those who overcome. Now, what's the application in all of this? Well, this is a letter. And, and it's, it, we're very prone to look at it and say, see, so what do I need to do in my personal life? And yes... You should always find application to your personal life. But I would be changing this text if I said that the application was to individuals. It's not. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this application this morning is to the body of Christ at Eastwood. This is the application. Faithful disciples keep Christ in the center. Is Jesus in the center? Or as a body, do we push more for what we want, what we prefer, what we desire? Are we more concerned with what we believe we have a right to or what we think we are entitled to? Are we more concerned with minor issues? Are we more concerned with things that don't matter, matter in the great scheme of, uh, of eternity? Are we more concerned with what may be up on that screen or what may come through these speakers than what goes out to the community? Are we more concerned about what we prefer than we are that just eight months ago there were people who live in these homes and these apartments right next to our property who when we said we were from Eastwood Baptist Church, they literally said, oh, that's wonderful, where's that? Are we more concerned with the fact that there are people who basically live in our parking lot and don't know who we are? Are we more concerned that there are people who basically live in our parking lot and they don't know who Jesus is? We can come in here and we can worship him every single week, but I can tell you this. He's not in the center. If we're singing about how he saved us from our sin and yet there are people dying and going to hell within 300 feet of this building because they have never been spoken to, They've never been touched with the gospel. Now, of course, we're doing things to change all of that, and we are. But know this. Um, if you're not a part of that, you need to get to be a part of that. Because we are called, yes, to stand for doctrinal integrity. Yes, to stand for the truth of the word of God. Yes, to call out false teaching. Yes, to be pure and moral and to stand against sin. But all of this is done for what? For his name's sake. We do it so that others may know who he is. We do it so that others may live. See, if we've abandoned our first love, if you've gotten to the place where things are more about what you want and what you think should happen, if you've gotten off course, then you need to heed. I need to heed the call. We need to heed the call of this passage this morning. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. What does that mean? What does this look like? Well, 
It's a man named Justin Van Deventer. He was a successful teacher. He loved his profession. He's very well known, very well liked. He was also a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, participated in his church, uh, did all those wonderful things. And, uh, and, and in so doing, he believed he was serving the Lord, but he couldn't get away from the fact that he felt deeply convicted that he was supposed to be in the ministry. Deeply convicted that he was supposed to give up the vocation he loved, the vocation that was in the center of his life, what he was known for. He became deeply convicted of that. And he realized that he had abandoned the love he had at first because he was choosing what he wanted, what he desired over Christ being in the center of his life. And one evening at a revival meeting, he came under the deep conviction that this was the truth. So he determined to give over. To say, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to try to hold on to the center. I'm going to let Jesus have the center. So he did so. And in 1896, after that event, he wrote a song. He wrote a song that's known worldwide now. And, and, and really is, has been known for centuries, since 1896. The words of this hymn should be the very cry of our hearts this morning. See, in a moment, Brother Steve and the praise band is going to come up and we're going to have a time of invitation. And when we do, I know there's nothing special about it but um, in, in the sense of uh, theologically, but there is something special about it in the sense of who we are and in our hearts. But as a church and as the people of God, as we move out into these, these new days that the, the Lord Jesus Christ has for our church here in Bowling Green and surrounding areas, even if you say, well, I think I've got Jesus in the center. If you're not certain, then I'm telling you this. This morning, this altar should be full. It should be full. Why do we call it an altar? I told you all this before. We don't call it an altar because it's a place of worship. We call it an altar because it's a place where things come to die. So what did Van Deventer write in this song in 1896? Well, this is what he wrote. You're probably familiar with the words. He sat down and he penned these words. All to Jesus... I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior holy thine. Let me feel thy Holy Spirit and truly know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender. I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. And let thy blessing fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. That is the call this morning. Have you lost your first love? Have you abandoned your first love? Have you allowed the things of this world and the things of life to crowd Jesus out of the center? And, and you, you've allowed that to happen in your own personal life? Do you feel maybe we've allowed that to happen corporately as a church? Then we need to come to this altar this morning and simply say, Jesus, I'm done holding on to the center. I want you to have it. I surrender all. We surrender all. That's the call. 
this morning for the church. If you're a believer this morning, it should be an opportunity to, to, yes, renew, but to repent and to turn from that and to say, I want you in the center now, Jesus, more than anything. And if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what the call is for you? Turn from your sin, repent, and say, I surrender all. We should fill this altar this morning, crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us where we have taken him out of the center and pray that he would be in the center of our lives individually and in our church corporately as we move into this world and declare Jesus is Lord.